One down, 49 to go. On Monday night, Iowans went to their caucus precincts and fired the first shots of the 2016 election. Welcome to the Ballot Ball Podcast. I'm James Murphy, your host and commissioner of BallotBall.com. I'm joined, as always, by Seamus, my dog and the official mascot of the sport. For new listeners, this is a podcast about elections in America and around the world, and we've got a packed show for you today. We're going to take a look back at what happened in Iowa by talking to a few voters who caucused and see what they thought of the whole process. Then we'll take a quick tour around the world to see what big elections are happening in February, including an Iranian prospect who might become incredibly important in years to come. And then we'll wrap up with the new Ballot Ball Classic segment where we'll journey through space and time for an exciting event. So let's get right into it. Iowa is done. It's over. The people have spoken and they've said Ted Cruz is a winner by a lot and Hillary Clinton is the winner by a little bit. With this narrative firmly in place, the media is moving on to the New Hampshire primary and then on to some larger states in the South. On March 1st, the so-called SEC primary is held where a huge chunk of delegates are going to be distributed. After that, it's likely many more candidates will have dropped out and we'll have more clarity on who's going to win. But let's just go back to Iowa and look at the results really quick. If you've been watching the news, you've probably seen that Ted Cruz is being celebrated as the big winner. Donald Trump is being mocked for throwing a Trumper tantrum and saying Cruz cheated, while Marco Rubio is being celebrated for finishing third and exceeding expectations. If this is the case, surely the delegate total will spell this out. The first Republican to get 1,237 delegates wins, so let's see how close Cruz already is. Let's see. I'm going to go to CNN's election website, look at the Iowa results, and how many delegates does Cruz have on the way to 1,237? He has eight. Hmm, that's not too many, but uh, he was a big winner on Monday, so Trump and Rubio must have far fewer. So let's see, Trump has seven. Rubio also has seven. Wait a minute, this doesn't seem like a clear cut as everybody is saying. This is because Iowa isn't a winner-take-all contest. The delegates are given out proportionally, and even though Cruz won by several percentage points, it was only enough to get one more delegate than his closest rivals. Let's set this aside for a second and look at the Democrats. The conventional wisdom is that Clinton won, but by just a little bit. There were some coin tosses to decide some of the county delegates, and the delegate count in Iowa split just about even. So let's go to CNN's election website again and track the delegate count. It should be about even. So here we go. Bernie Sanders has 34 delegates total, and Clinton has 411. Wait a minute. 411? That's not close at all. 411 delegates is 17% of the way to the 4,700 delegates you need to win. What's going on? The answer is what's called a superdelegate. These only exist on the Democratic side, and they make about 15% of the total delegates, and consist of Democratic governors, congresspeople, and other party officials. They can support whoever they like, and many of them have already chosen sides in the Clinton versus Sanders matchup. This is why the delegate totals are so skewed. The Iowa delegates really are split pretty evenly, but Clinton has hundreds of superdelegates who have publicly announced that they will back her. Now, these people can change their mind, and in fact, a South Carolina superdelegate recently did just that and went from Clinton's camp over to Sanders. But these superdelegates are important because they illustrate the type of institutional support that Clinton has. 411 to 34 isn't an official score, but it's just as inaccurate to call the race a tie. The secretary is definitely winning the delegate count right now. If Sanders can pull off a big win in New Hampshire and get some momentum, this might change, but it's important to realize that Clinton has a lot of friends among the superdelegates, and they will make it very hard for Sanders to turn the tide. 
I hope I didn't rain on anyone's parade with that recap. Of course, Cruz and Clinton should feel good about their wins. I just wanted to do a little reality check to illustrate that these primaries are complicated things, and we shouldn't let a good narrative get in the way of what actually happened. Now then, let's get to the voters themselves. The idea behind Ballot Ball is that voting is a sport, but it's not a spectator sport. Voters are players just like the candidates are, and perhaps no election better typifies this than the, than the Iowa caucuses. If you listen to last month's episode, you remember that the caucuses aren't as simple as just voting and going home. In Iowa, the voting goes all night long. My first guests caucused for the Democrats on Monday. This is uh, Sarah Headland and Jonathan Green. And uh, am, I, am I right that you got my cousin Mandy to come caucus for the first time uh, earlier this week? Did. I felt very proud. And where where was where was the caucus this time? Was it in Lone Tree or was it like in Muscatine or something like that? It was in Lone Tree at the elementary school oh, cafeteria. Okay. okay. Well, how how did it go? Uh, what was what was it like? Uh, it was cool. It was my first caucus, also. Oh, okay. Because um, I grew up here in Iowa, but left at 18 to go to school in Minnesota, so I've never participated in an election in Iowa before. Uh huh. So it's been exciting. Um, yeah, so it was cool. I got Mandy to go and our other good friend, Gus, who had never been to one either. Um, I don't know. I, I was very surprised. It was very non-confrontational. I was kind of afraid it was going to turn into, like, you know, a Facebook argument or something. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody was pretty cordial, and uh, I think everyone knew who they were going to support when they got there, though. Okay, so, yeah. Yeah, that was that was my biggest question. Like, do people change their minds? Like, did people mill about in like the undecided thing, and then you had to go over and like convince them to come over to one side? Or we had one undecided out of one hundred and four people. Oh, okay. One hundred and six. One undecided and two Martin O'Malley supporters. Oh, okay. And they they were forced to like after the first round they had to join somebody else. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a Byzantine process. <laughs> Precinct had four delegates to award, uh, which is calculated by our precinct's turnout in previous general elections. And so any any group who gets less than 15% of the 106 participants is considered to be not viable, and they have to we go through a process called realignment mm-hmm. where they have to select another viable candidate group to support. And so that's the, that's kind of the town hall, you know, convince your neighbor to come join your camp aspect of the process. Okay. But we, as Sarah mentioned, we only had one undecided uh, caucus goer and two folks supporting O'Malley. So, there, you know, folks were pretty calcified into their positions, and there was not a lot of, you know, horse trading as there can be in some cycles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was that was one of my questions. I'm I'm in Maryland right now. I was going to ask, did uh, did the did the former governor did he get any love? Was anybody supporting O'Malley? Or uh, sounds like two two people were for for a little bit at least. Yeah, he didn't have there wasn't much support <laughs> there. Um, yeah, I mean, I did sit down and talk to the one girl who was undecided, because uh-huh. uh, uh, we both are Bernie supporters, um, and we were talking to her. She just didn't really know much about either candidate, so talk talked to her about Bernie, because we're both supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, 
I felt bad, though, because I had just sat down with her, and then slowly this, like, group of people formed around us, and then there was, like, 15 people arguing, like, across her. I know. <laughs> it was really bad. Like, she looked a little stressed out by the end of it, uh-huh. but she said she wasn't overwhelmed and that she had learned a lot, and she really enjoyed the experience, so I don't think we scared her off. Okay. <laughs> Does it? It sounds like uh, Jonathan that you've you've been to caucuses before. Like, how did this compare to the past ones? Uh, you know, in our precinct, it was pretty pretty typical, really. Uh, this is my third, I guess. The second that I participated in, I worked for a newspaper uh, twelve years ago, so I observed it as a reporter, and then I participated eight years ago. And I was living in Wyoming four years ago, so I wasn't able to participate here then. But I'd say it was uh, par for the course in Lone Tree. Mm-hmm. I know that there's been uh, a lot of reports of uh, difficulties, potential irregularities elsewhere, which I'm fairly concerned about after the, the fracas that was the Republican caucus four years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm concerned that uh, we've kind of put ourselves in an impossible spot. Because if we carry on the way that we've been carrying on, especially after our governor, Terry Bradstad, involved himself in the race uh, by calling on Republicans to caucus for basically anyone other than Cruz, mm-hmm. which is kind of a level of involvement that... Uh, I think a lot of people find distasteful for the sitting governor to get uh, that involved into the throwing his weight around because he's very popular Republican governor here. Mm-hmm. And I'm just concerned that now there's going to be a lot of folks four years from now that think that they can just skip the caucus, which will, you know, continue to erode the credibility of the process. But, uh, you know, it's a catch-22 because, on the other hand, the easiest way to solve it would be to switch from a caucus to a primary. But if we do that because New Hampshire's been promised to be the first primary, you know, we we lose an awful lot because we'd no longer be the first dominating contest in the country. Oh, yeah. No, I, I definitely feel your pain. I'm in, I vote in D.C. and we're, we're, the last, we're the last primary. And I don't even mean 50th, I mean like 59th, because right. they do like Guam and Samoa and there's like a Democrats abroad primary. So no one's going to care what I, what I say. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't know. There are people that will argue with a straight face that Iowa has some kind of special qualification to be uh, first. And, uh, you know, frankly, I find those arguments lacking but at the same time, it would still be uh, a painful process because, you know, obviously we enjoy the national attention. It brings an awful lot of money into the state. And, you know, as it is, it feels like I was ignored for three and a half years out of every four anyway. And if we lose this, it just seems like, you know, it, it would hurt the state. Yeah. That being said, it may still be the best thing to do to go to a rotating system or maybe to find a state that 
choose the metrics that you want to use, you know, that is more representative of the country writ large. But on the on the plus side, do you guys get to see a lot of the candidates, right? Have you did you guys get to caught in any motorcades or uh, anybody come to knock on your door? Any of the big shots? Uh, well, nobody's coming down here because we're a town of like a thousand people where we specifically live. Uh -huh. um, we definitely have had the opportunity to go see candidates if we wanted to, or you know, have made the time to. Because I think they were in Iowa, you know, they've been in Iowa City and Des Moines, not very far away. Mm -hmm. Um, we haven't gone to see any of them, though. Yeah, I mean, Iowa, for being a, a middle-sized state geographically, we've got a bunch of counties. We have 99 counties, and mm -hmm. especially on the Republican side, there's a tradition of visiting all 99 counties, each of these candidates. But as Sarah said, Little Tree is a pretty small community, but we happen to be in Johnson County, which also has Iowa City and the University of Iowa. Mm -hmm. So when candidates are passing through hitting all 99 counties, inevitably they stop in Iowa City and, you know, see thousands of college students instead of coming down here into the sticks. Whereas if we were a small community in a county that doesn't have you know, the 800-pound grill of Iowa City. We potentially occasionally see candidates here, but in, in my knowledge, I can't think of uh, a candidate having ever stopped in Lone Tree. Okay. So my, my last question was about uh, how I heard that, Jonathan, you were elected as a delegate from, from the convention. Can you, or, can you tell me what that means? Well, the, the, the caucus process is to select delegates to the county conventions. So there's 99 of those. That's going to happen in about a month's time. And uh, given to that math that I mentioned earlier, our precinct was given four delegates to send to the county convention. Mm -hmm. And we split two for Bernie Sanders and two for Hillary Clinton. And then each camp gets to elect their uh, delegates. And I was nominated in one one of the two positions on the Sanders ticket. So in a month, I will go to the county convention, which is going to be quite similar to what the caucus was. Mm -hmm. A lot of, uh, you know, routine party business and whatnot. And then at some point in that process, all of the individual precinct delegates will have an opportunity to select a subset of us that will go to a district convention in April or in May. And then from there, the same thing happens again. We whittle down the numbers. We select a couple that we send to the state convention. And then it's at the state convention where, you know, you might have 1% of the people that were involved in the 99 county conventions. From there, we'll select I believe Iowa has 44 delegates uh, the, on the uh, Democratic side that we'll send to the Democratic National Convention. And I believe it's in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. uh, so out of probably, I don't know, five or 6,000 uh, precinct delegates, of which I am one, mm -hmm. Through the next three conventions, we will whittle that number down to 44 that we will send to Philadelphia. Oh. 
And, and can you can you change your mind when you go to the next level? Can you like become a Hillary supporter or vice versa for Hillary supporters becoming Bernie Sanders supporters? I would say only that it's significantly frowned upon. Uh-huh. There, there are no contractual or legal obligations. But the way that it typically works is in the modern era, and when I say the modern era, since about 1980, 1984, typically at the national convention, you know, the last standing challenger to the eventual nominee concedes. And at that point, uh, after a concession is made, the, the candidate typically will direct their delegates to support the nominee. So that the nominee, you know, on paper, it makes for uh, a more satisfying press release to say that the candidate was, you know, unanimously elected. And you're seeing that already on the Republican side where... Uh, Rick Santorum dropped out yesterday, mm-hmm. and because he endorsed Rubio, that is an indication for the delegates that he won in Iowa to go ahead and switch their support to Rubio. Okay. And so you'll see more and more of that in states as more states continue to vote and more candidates continue to drop out. Okay. Oh, yeah, so that's really interesting. So all the news reports that we see that are kind of like showing like the virtual tie or maybe Hillary has a little lead in the delegates, uh, like by the convention time, we'll kind of know either Hillary or Bernie will have dropped out of the race and I will, will probably give all its delegates to whoever the, the nominee is going to be. Yeah, that's, that is typically what happens when you occasionally hear, if you follow the, the hardcore politicos and occasionally maybe you hear whispers of a brokered or contested convention. Mm -hmm. What that refers to is when somebody doesn't concede before the convention and then it it is actually the convention that settles the race because you have ballots and horse trading and all that kind of stuff. But that that is kind of like a a political reporter's wet dream. (laughs) It just doesn't... uh, both political parties have very good self-interested reasons to avoid letting that happen. So they're doing everything they can, and they do always do everything that they can to preclude a contested convention. Right. Well, cool. But for my for my sake, though, like yes, it's definitely very entertaining. I want contested conventions all all over the place. Much more to much more to cover and uh, all those stories stories to take. But. Um... But, the, but thanks for you guys for talking to me and good luck at the at the county convention. Uh, do are you looking forward? Are you trying to? Would you like to go all the way to the national convention? Like, do you campaign or uh, you just kind of let things go the way they go? No, I I would, and you know, you'll have an opportunity. I will have an opportunity to to make my case to to get passed along to the district convention and to the state convention mm-hmm. and to the national convention. I'd like that. I think my chances are probably pretty slim uh, just because I'm not, I'm new to town. I've lived here before, but I'm not plugged into the party apparatus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the next convention I go to is going to be the county convention, again, with Iowa City, which, you know, that's just the center of gravity of our county. Oh, okay. so, uh, I suspect that it's going to be hard for me to 
get passed along to the district convention because I suspect there's going to be people from Iowa City that are plugged in and are already making alliances and <laughs> uh, make sure that they get the votes. That said, I am going to try. Oh, okay. Well, good. Well, good luck. That'll be that'll be really exciting. Well, thank you for talking to us. Yeah, absolutely. And Do you need to give Mandy a nookie or anything. For yes. You? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So, that's how it went for the Democrats. Now let's take a turn up to Iowa's northwest corner and see how the Republican caucus went. Kyle Waltich is my old college friend who I just learned moved to Iowa. I asked him how the caucus went. Yeah, well, I moved here about a, I don't know, was it a year and a half ago or so. and uh, was up in Minnesota before that and Idaho before that and kind of just bouncing around. Uh, but definitely uh, the, uh, like the in-laws are... Kind of being into politics and being, you know, first time in Iowa, I thought it was pretty good opportunity to go, and it was definitely interesting. And living in Northwest Iowa, you know, we're one county north of the probably the, I think they Sioux County, the county to the south, claims to be the most conservative county in the country. Uh huh. I think they had like six Democrats show up for their caucus in some of their districts. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, Northwest. That's like that's cruise cruise country, right? Or did did Trump do well up there too? I. No. Trump did pretty poorly in our county. Oh, okay. You know, at least in our caucus, you know, I I would consider myself like libertarian, you know, more uh, fi- uh, financially conservative and more socially liberal. Mm-hmm. You know, coming from Oregon, I think that's kind of where my roots are. Sure. <laughs> uh, but I think Trump finished fourth in our, we had to kind of, in our two districts that were voted together. Okay. Um, but it was interesting. I went in there with kind of an open mind and then, Kind of wanted to see what it was all about, and uh-huh. uh, kind of cool, you know. The Democrats and the Republicans do it differently, you know. I know you probably already know that, but the Democrats, you know, do a little. They stand in different corners of the room, and mm-hmm. they don't get certain, you know, percentage, and they go off in different corners. But I thought it was neat, you know. You get to hear people talk and see what they believe, and you know, I'm not sure if everybody necessarily would change their mind when they went to a caucus. Yeah. But, you know, for people that kept an open mind, it was kind of neat to kind of hear people's thoughts. And um, sometimes there was people that had representatives' letters or notes, you know, or, you know, from the candidate themselves to say, this is what, you know, we believe in, which was less uh, maybe emotional or, you know, less uh, inspiring than the folks that just stood up there and talked about why they believe in a certain candidate. That was kind of cool to me. Yeah, yeah. So you went you went with an open mind. Then did someone convince convince you who to vote for? Or you were kind of leaning one way or the other. Well, you know, I think you know, I, you know, just for whatever reason, kind of get gut feelings about certain people and how you you align with their candidacy. Mm-hmm. So I kind of went in, kind of leaning more uh, Ben Carsony because I kind of like his health reform stuff, uh-huh. and uh, you know Jeb Bush, I like his tax policy. You know, or, or the idea of whatever, you know, if you could actually get that to work, you know, having uh, more unilateral taxation and, uh, you know, more tax increase, but only if we're going to cut the spending and get the budget under control. I think that was kind of, I kind of like that. So I kind of went in with a few guys that, you know, I, I like Marco Rubio as far as leadership goes, mm-hmm. not necessarily all of his policies. He's a little uh, on the different end of the social social conservative, you know. And I'm more, you know, uh, social liberal. So, but I like him as a leader. Okay. You know, it's it's kind of reminds me of you know back when we were doing elections and student government, and um, 
you know, it's kind of hard to, you don't always agree with everything everybody likes, but you kind of are choosing for the most part, if you have an open mind and open heart, like what you believe in and what, where you're after. Do you think a lot of people were voting like strategically, like who they thought was going to win or was it more of like with their heart, just like who they thought was more trustworthy or who they liked better? You know, I think it was, it was everything. You know, uh-huh. there was, you know, you know, the town that I live in is 3,500 people and there was probably, uh, I think there was like 400 people probably in the room. Uh-huh. So pretty, pretty big turnout, you know, for a small little district. Um, you know, but I think you had a wide range of people voting party lines, voting with their heart, people that actually educated themselves, you know, mm-hmm. I'm more about, you know, I don't care about party lines and stuff like that. When it comes election time, I'm going to vote for who I believe in. Mm-hmm. I think there was a fair number of people, like I know my in-laws are very uh, uh, political and, you know, they're farmers and stuff. So that's important that, you know, that's a big aspect of what they do. And they're a little bit more socially conservative, mm-hmm. but I think they went through the whole gamut of they like a certain candidate and they explored what they believed in and they watched the debates and, you know, so they educated themselves and they vote, they're going to vote for what's important to them. And I really respect that. That's great. Okay. Oh, cool. Oh, I, I have a question. You said you were, you, you liked Ben Carson. I heard, I don't know if this is just like a media story or what, but there were, there was, there was a story about a rumor getting that he was quitting that night and then some, something saying, Oh, was it like a dirty trick? And did it get people to vote for somebody else? Did, did you hear anything about that yeah, that night? No, I did hear that the next day. Ah, okay. Maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday, I, I heard that maybe, I can't remember whose camp was saying, oh, is it like maybe Trump's camp? I heard it on the radio, so I, uh-huh. I, I, I didn't educate myself completely on that one. But uh, somebody said that, oh, he did this as a stunt, and now he pulled out and all his supporters went to, you know, Cruz's way or somebody else's way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in our, in, in, Lyon County, where where I live, Ben Carson finished second. So we okay, so nobody at the clock seemed to think he was not going to be there. Yeah. Or no, excuse me, he finished third. Uh-huh. But, uh, it was pretty close. You know, the I want to say they kind of said that our district, you know, maybe 60, 50, 55 to 49, kind of uh-huh. Carson at 49. So not too far behind uh, Cruz and Rubio right, right, right behind him too. So it was pretty interesting. I... I just thought it was a neat experience coming from a place that, you know, where our politics usually are muddled and don't get to matter very much by the time it comes election time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I remember back in, in Oregon, I, I don't even remember if I voted in primaries because I feel like everything was always decided by then that it was like kind of just waiting for a general election or something like that. Yeah, and I think I was eligible to vote twice in Oregon, I want to say, for, <laughs> and I, I don't remember a primary ever mattering. Yeah, exactly. So it was just interesting to be part of the early part of the politics, you know, and, you know, I've always been, you know, super big, you know, growing up for whatever reason, watching the West Wing or, you know, those more political shows. I've always kind of intrigued me. To, I wish I was always more involved in politics, but uh, so I, it's fun to be kind of involved in this level, I guess, you know, being the first primary. I guess it was just kind of cool, you know, a caucus. Yeah. Of, yeah, that's really cool. I, I just I just talked to somebody else. I said who was at the Democratic caucus, and they and they wound up getting elected as like a um, as like a delegate, like a county delegate, and moving on. I wonder if uh, if you do another caucus, if you can uh, get elected as a as, as a delegate to move on like that, or if it's just for party people. Well, it's at least in our county, it seemed like they kind of had that kind of set already. Ah. 
you know, the, the guy that the couple people up there that in each district, uh, they had moderators kind of county delegate, you know, district mm-hmm. delegates or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they, they were up there organizing, like, you know, let's get started. And they had the microphone. They, I think they were maybe, they worked in the Republican office, you know, in the district maybe. Uh-huh. And it was not, I did, not that any, it was a big deal, but, you know, they said, well, we need a chair for District 7 or we need a chair for District 8, and a quick second, and, you know, nobody was opposed, which is not a big deal. You know, it's not a pretty small deal. Just, you know, they were in charge of counting the vote at the end there. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Well, that's that's awesome to hear that uh, that you had a they had a good time. I assume you're more interested to go to go next next time next uh, go around in four years. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, it's definitely uh, you know, especially with uh, I don't know. It just feels as you know now that we're in our thirties, it's maybe the politics are taking more of a role, and you could kind of have the opportunity to uh, you know maybe voice your opinion and kind of you know you kind of know what's important to you now. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for for taking the time. I really wanted to get this uh, podcast out before the New Hampshire primary, so I appreciate yep. you making making the time now. My thanks to Kyle and Sarah and Jonathan. It was pretty great to hear that despite going to different caucuses, they all seemed to have an optimistic view of their experience and were interested in doing it again next go around. All eyes are on New Hampshire now as the candidates slog on, but it's nice to see that despite some of the nasty rhetoric that gets thrown around, some of the voters are actually pretty happy with who they've chosen. Let's keep the show going, though, and go to the International Ballot Ball Studio to check out what's happening in the rest of the world. Originally, I wanted to cover the presidential election in Haiti for this segment because it was supposed to happen in January. It's a really interesting story involving an outgoing president trying to get his chosen successor elected, claims of voter fraud, and even a rap battle between Wyclef Jean and the president's son after the Fuji singer switched allegiances and started backing an opposition candidate. However, last month's election has been postponed indefinitely because of a fear of violence and a boycott by the opposition that claims the government can't be trusted to organize the election fairly. You can find the whole story about it on Balabal's homepage that explains more. I titled the article Rain Delay. Get it? Like how a ball game gets delayed because of weather, but I spelled it, I spelled rain, R-E-I-G-N, because the election was delayed. Good times. But anyway, since I can't go into depth about an election that hasn't happened, I'll just preview some big elections around the world that are going to happen in February. To start, let's stay in the Americas, but head south to Bolivia where President Evo Morales is holding a referendum to try and change the Constitution to end his term limits. We're seeing this happen quite a bit recently around the world. There's a story on Balabal's website about how Rwandans just voted to do a similar thing, and it wasn't even that long ago that New York City changed their own charter to allow Michael Bloomberg to run for a third term. Leaving Bolivia behind, let's ride the equator east across the Atlantic Ocean to West Africa. In Niger, there's an election that's going to be held on the 21st of February. This could be a really big moment for the country, which suffered a military coup in 2010. President Mohamedou Asufu was elected shortly after and survived a plot to assassinate him by members of the military. Now he's running for re-election against 14 opponents. One of them is running from a jail cell due to child trafficking charges, though the candidate, Hama Amadou, is claiming that the charges are politically motivated. Leaving Africa, we're headed to the Middle East and Iran, where an election will be held on the 26th. Now, this isn't an election for the presidency. Currently, President Hassan Rouhani is about halfway through his eight-year term, 
And it's certainly not for the office of Supreme Leader. That position is currently filled by Ayatollah Khomeini, and he serves for life. But voters are going to go to the polls to elect members of what's called the Assembly of Experts. Now, this body of legislators might have my favorite name of any Congress on Earth. The Assembly of Experts sounds like the title for the eighth Harry Potter book, or maybe a Marvel superhero movie, the Assembly of Experts versus the Superdelegates in Space. But the Assembly of the Experts have been around since 1989. They were instrumental in appointing Ayatollah Khomeini as Supreme Leader that year, and in theory, they have the power to replace him. However, most people acknowledge that since the Assembly has become more of a rubber stamp committee that mainly validates anything the Supreme Leader does. Before anyone can get into the Assembly, they have to submit to an extensive vetting process. And so far, at least 80% of the candidates who filed to run for office have been disqualified for one reason or another by the Guardian Council. This council presumably is weeding out candidates who might oppose the decisions of the Supreme Leader. The Guardian Council, by the way, is another excellent name for a Marvel movie sometime down the road. Just saying. But I'm bringing up the Assembly's election because one candidate is drawing a lot of attention as a potential future Supreme Leader. Hassan Khomeini is the 43-year-old grandson of Ayatollah Khomeini, who spearheaded the Iranian Revolution back in 1979. I realize you might be getting confused on all the names right now, so I'll just quickly I'll go back. Ayatollah Khomeini took power in 1979 and died 10 years later. The current Supreme Leader's name is Ayatollah Khomeini, while the Assembly of Experts candidate I'm talking about is Khomeini's grandson. Since he's relatively new on the political scene, it's too early to say what effect he will have, but such a, with such a powerful grandfather and his past speeches where he called for an end to violent extremism and opposed the nation's fundamentalist leaders, there is at least a little hope that the grandson might move the country in a new direction if he ever rives, rises to Supreme Leader. So let's just say this is your first chance to hear the name Hassan Khomeini. Like a young AAA prospect on your favorite baseball team, keep your eyes out for him because he might be huge. But let's be real, the intricacies of Midi's priests are a bit over my pay grade. I'm going to leave that issue to the diplomats. Before we end our tour of international elections happening this month, I want to head back to Africa real quick and talk about one of the most unique presidential elections I've ever seen. It's happening on the tiny island nation of Comoros. Located off the coast of Madagascar, Comoros is actually an archipelago of several islands, with three of them, Anjou, Moeli, and Grand Comore, being the home to most of the country's people. These islands all have their own unique history where indigenous Bantu people came into contact with French and Arab colonizers over the centuries. So how does such a gr diverse group of people decide on a single president to lead them? Easily. They take turns. The current president hails from the island of Moeli. He can't run for re-election because the islands take turns electing presidents. This year, some lucky politician from Grand Comore will get elected, and when their term is done, someone from Anjou will become president. All the islands get to vote, but only candidates from particular islands get to run. This sort of federation is reminiscent of the European Union, which rotates its presidency among the member nations. But imagine this sort of eligibility rule in an American election, a 50-state rotating presidential residency requirement. Since Barack Obama was elected out of Illinois, another candidate from the land of Lincoln wouldn't be eligible to run for 200 years. As you can see, February is going to be a busy month. Hopefully you'll be able to hear some news about these other elections, despite the fact that the American election is sucking up all the oxygen in political coverage. So, with our world tour complete, let's head over to the Baobal Classic Studio for our final segment. I had a tough choice for this episode of Balabal Classic. 
For new listeners, this is the segment where I reveal that I have the power to travel through space and time and witness some great moments in electoral history. In previous episodes, I've zoomed back to ancient Greece to witness the great Cleisthenes invent the electoral process as we know it today, and I've warped out to a galaxy far, far away to witness the evil Palpatine get elected before the Galactic Senate. For today, though, I was trying to choose a good topic. I could go to South Africa in February 1990 and witness Nelson Mandela being released from prison. Soon he'd become president and bring an end to the apartheid regime. Or I could do an Oscar special and celebrate the DVD release of the film Suffragette. I'd go to, to England in 1912 and watch Meryl Streep's character, Emmeline Pankhurst, say one of my favorite quotes about suffrage and voter participation. She said of the protesters, we're not here because we are lawbreakers, but because we want to be lawmakers. Great stuff there. But unfortunately, my space and time machine is busted. The American presidential race is acting like a black hole, sucking up all political coverage and preventing me from leaving the United States. For this reason, this episode of Battle Ball Classic, we're going to cover a subject that involves Republican frontrunner Ted Cruz. To pat myself on the back, I predicted a few months ago that if Cruz ever started to challenge Donald Trump's lead in the polls, Trump would start to make hay out of the fact that Cruz was born in Canada. Trump led the charge in trying to disqualify President Obama from office before, because of his claim that he was born in Kenya, so coming after Cruz seemed like a logical next step. If you haven't heard about this story before, let me back up a second. The Constitution says that the president must, all presidents must be natural-born citizens of the United States. But in a great moment of founding father humor, they neglected to mention what that meant. In 1790, they realized their oversight and defined natural-born citizenship by writing the Naturalization Act. Those born in, on U.S. soil or those born overseas to U.S. citizens made the cut. But in the very next sentence, they said that natural-born citizenship would not pass to the children whose fathers had never been U.S. residents. Flash forward to the present, and we have Senator Cruz, whose mother was an American citizen, and whose father was Cuban, and never before a resident of the U.S. Did the founders mean to suggest that a mother's citizenship is irrelevant for her child? Doesn't the 14th, doesn't the 14th Amendment mean that gender discrimination is illegal? Is anyone following me here? Now, I'm not going to pretend that I'm a constitutional scholar and can adjudicate these claims, but I can say, as a fan of the sport of ballot ball, I've never been a fan of the Constitution's eligibility requirements for president. It seems the height of undemocratic behavior to tell voters who they can and cannot choose to lead them. And more to the point, this isn't the first time this requirement has muddied the waters for popular presidential candidates. In 2008, the Republicans nominated John McCain, who had been born in the Panama Canal Zone while his father was serving as the Admiral of the Navy there. In order to prevent eligibility questions from being raised, the Senate unanimously passed a resolution saying McCain was eligible. Even Senator Obama, who was running against McCain in the election, signed it. Though he was probably hoping that they might put his name on the resolution, too, in order to quiet down Trump and the other birthers. In the 1960s, two more Republican candidates had their eligibility questioned. George Romney, that's Mitt Romney's dad, ran for president in 1968. He had been born in Mexico on a Mormon settlement near Chihuahua. Opponents claimed Romney's parents had renounced their U.S. citizenship when they went to Mexico prior to his birth, so George, being foreign-born to non-citizens, should not be eligible to be president. The question wound up being moot because Richard Nixon wound up winning that election and everyone forgot about it. Four years earlier, the Republican nominee for president was Barry Goldwater, and he was guilty of the unforgivable sin of being born in Arizona. The sin here was that he was born in 1909, and Arizona didn't become a state until 1912. See the problem here? Seems like we're splitting hairs. But 
I'll end this episode by talking about one politician who I think did violate the spirit of the constitutional eligibility requirements, if not the letter. And it's a requirement I think is much more important than where your mother mother decided to give birth to you. You see, besides being a natural-born citizen, the Constitution also requires that you are at least 35 years old and have resided in the U.S. for 14 years. In 1853, we had a man in office who was never actually in the country at all. William R. King campaigned as vice president in 1852. His ticket was successful, and once sworn in, he would have been next in line to be president. Surely these eligibility requirements applied to him as well. But upon winning the election, King fell ill with tuberculosis. He took a boat to Cuba to recover in the warm weather. Congress passed a special resolution allowing for him to swear into office while residing in Havana. Donald Trump is losing his temper about a candidate whose father was born in Cuba. What would he think of a vice president who lived in Cuba while in office? So whatever your political stripe and whoever you think is eligible or ineligible to be president, let's all agree that telecommuting from another country is not an acceptable thing for someone in the executive branch. Show up to work or resign, Mr. King. Now is probably not the best time to explain that King did in fact return home to North Carolina after his stay in Cuba, but it wasn't for long. He died the next day. So maybe I'm being too rough on him. But that's all for this month's show. Our next episode will recap the upcoming primaries in New Hampshire and South Carolina, and of course, the all-important SEC primary. In the meantime, uh, there will be weekly stories put up on BallotBall.com. You can follow at Ballot underscore Ball for live tweets during the debates, where I call penalties in real time. And of course, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a review. It really helps the show rise in the rankings and be heard by more people.